So this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 38. So if you just have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and open up to that psalm. We're going to be reading through the passage as we go. Um, I would love, I don't get to preach that often, so when I do, I would love to get to preach on just the mountaintop passages, uh, the ones that are really uh, make us feel good inside. And, and uh, But this is a passage that's more about the valley what we just sang about. And so that is a place where we live our lives oftentimes in this fallen and broken world. And so it's very important that we look at it. Uh, This morning, Psalm 38 really deals with a difficult subject, but it's an important subject, and it's the subject of God's discipline in our lives. So as we get started, before we look into the passage, I just want to ask a few questions that I want us to think about as we go through. And the first question is, Does a loving God directly and purposefully discipline his children? Do we see that in scripture? Do we see that in our lives? And the second question I want us to think about is, if he does do that, do you see that discipline as a form of his love in your life? These days in our culture, we like to talk a lot about love, right? And we talk about We like to link God with love in the culture. Even a lot of non-Christians will say God equals love, God is love. And what they mean by that is really kind of a surface, feel-good type of love. It's a love that accepts everything, that that, uh, is all about uh, acceptance and just making us feel good, right? It's about comfort. So we hear a lot about that in our culture. And of of course, here at Christ Community Church, we would say, that God is love. We would say he's the author and creator of love. But would a loving God directly cause pain and suffering in the lives of his people? Would he do that? Does he do that? This thought would be controversial for sure in popular culture where God is seen as kind of a benevolent grandmother or a cosmic Santa Claus who's there really just to make our lives good to help us live our best life, to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. Even in some Christian churches, this thought of God's discipline would be controversial at best. Some would consider it downright hateful to talk about these things. And for some of you this morning, this thought of God's discipline may be difficult for you as well. Maybe you've not thought about it much. Maybe it's something you don't like to think about at all. And that's okay, but that's why we're looking at this passage this morning. So before you kind of turn me off or or run me out of here, uh, I just ask that you let God's Word speak to you. And I think that as we do that, as we look at this passage, we're going to see three things. The first thing is that God does indeed discipline the ones He loves. Secondly, I think that we'll see that godly discipline is for our ultimate good— and that it should lead to conviction, repentance, and spiritual growth. The third thing I want us to see is that God's discipline is actually mercy. It's his grace shown upon us in our lives. So as we think about those three things, as we look at this passage, I just want us also to address how we feel about this, how we feel about this in our hearts when we face discipline in our lives which if you are a child of God, you will. 
So this morning, like I said, we're looking at Psalm 38. It's a psalm of remembrance. It was written by King David. We've been learning a lot about David uh, as we finished up 1 Samuel a few weeks ago. As we've gone through that book of the Bible, we learned that David was chosen directly by God to be king of Israel. We saw that through his courage and faithfulness when he defeated Goliath, he foreshadowed Christ. Later on in Scripture, David's described as a man after God's own heart. So David was certainly a child of God. He loved the Lord loved him. Yet here in Psalm 38, we see that he is being laid low. He's facing the Lord's discipline for some unnamed sin in his life. Some scholars think that this may have been written after David had committed adultery and, and committed murder. And as a result of those actions, his kingdom, his reign was crumbling and his son was seeking to take power from him. We can't be sure if that's when this was written, but we know for sure that uh, there has been some sin in David's life and David has fallen under the discipline of the Lord and he is feeling the weight of the rebuke from a holy God. So let's just read these first eight verses in Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. So here we get a picture of brokenness. David is pouring out his heart to the Lord. He's pouring out his heart in lament, and he realizes that his sin has brought about this difficulty in his life. In verse 3, he mentions sin. In verse 4, he mentions his inequities. In verse 5, his foolishness. This idea of foolishness that we see in verse 5 really paints a picture for us of willful disobedience. David certainly knows God's ways. He's been walking with the Lord. He's aware of God's standard, yet he's deliberately chosen to disobey. David is a man who should know better, right? He's, he's seen God work miraculously in his life. He's been delivered over and over again in these difficult situations. Yet he's rebelled against the Lord. He's rebelled against his deliverer. And we see that he is well aware of God's wrath. He's aware of God's hand that's heavy upon him. We really get the picture here of God kind of laying down the hammer on David. He's facing the indignation of a holy God. That means the righteous anger of the Lord. And it feels like arrows sinking into his flesh. It's painful. It's grueling. It's uncomfortable. It seems that a part of God's discipline here for David might be physical illness as well. He states that there is no soundness in his flesh, no health in his bones, and he directly attributes these things to his sin. 
He states that he is feeble and crushed in verse 8. Some of this, of course, alludes to the mental anguish that he's facing, but I believe it's physical as well. And it does show us that at times God does discipline with illness. Now, I want to be careful here because in no way do I want to imply that all illness is disciplined for a specific sin. I think that's a dangerous thing, a dangerous way of thinking. We live in a fallen world, and illness, disease, is a part of that fall. It's a part of the judgment for sin in our world, and none of us escape it. So we must be careful not to ascribe all illness with specific sin, like every time, you know, your buddy gets a cold, you're like, man, what you been doing, right? What do you need to repent of? That's not what we're talking about here. But it does seem, in this case, that God has afflicted David with a physical ailment, and that's a part of his discipline. Yet the pain of this physical ailment can't compare to the mental anguish that David's facing as he reflects on the reason for his suffering. So just as creation groans to be redeemed, in verse 8 we see that David groans because of the turmoil in his heart. This picture of groaning, it's, it's a deep hurt that words really can't express. So have you ever been there in your life? Have you ever faced a hurt? Maybe you've been under the conviction of sin in your life. Maybe someone sinned against you and caused you great pain. Maybe you're facing a difficult illness. And there really are no words to express the way you feel. It's just pain. God hears your groan. We don't always have words. We can know that a loving God can hear that groan. So not only is David facing this physical pain, this mental anguish, it seems that he's been abandoned by his friends and family, that there are these enemies that are raising up against him. Let's read uh, verse 9 through 14 here. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof, from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. In verse 9, we see that David is not running from God. He's laying his longings before the Lord. Not only is David facing physical and spiritual pain, but in verse 11, we see that his family and his friends are ostracizing him. They're kind of drawing away from him. And as they draw away, another group is drawing close. There's these enemies, and they've risen up, and they've drawn near to David, and they want to... They want to devour him in his weakened state. They smell blood. There's blood in the water, and the sharks are circling. This is the way Satan operates in our lives. When we're weak, he draws near, he seeks to devour us. How many times have we seen this, maybe in our family? Sadly, maybe we've seen this in the church. There are times that 
as a part of church discipline, we are called to separate ourselves from an unrepentant sinner. And that's done strictly out of love for that person in hopes that they would repent and come back. But that's not the picture that we get here. We see that David is repentant of his sin. He's recognized his sin. He's confessed his sin. And this brings the question for us as a church body, as a community, as a family. And that question is, how do we treat our brothers and sisters when they fall? How do we treat them when they sin? And how do we treat them when that sin could be public and embarrassing and shameful? Are we among the scoffers? Are we abandoning them? Are we actively trying to destroy them? If we do that, I feel like we show a very poor understanding of who we are as broken, sinful people redeemed by grace alone. So when our brothers and sisters fail, do we look like the world? Is that what we're doing? Are we gossiping, mocking, abandoning, destroying? That's all the work of the enemy. Or are we looking like Christ? Are we displaying grace and mercy? Are we being an instrument in the redeeming work of the Lord? That might be a good way for you to know where you are in your own faith. How do you treat repentant sinners? Are you really believing in grace? Are you believing in works? So how does David react to his enemies? We see in verse 13 and 14 that David is waiting on the Lord. He doesn't open his mouth in response. He's not going to attack. He's trusting in the Lord to take care of that. He's suffering. His friends and family have abandoned him. His enemies are trying to destroy him. Yet we do not see David questioning God's justice. We never see him complaining that it's not fair that he's facing these things. He's not running from God. We see clearly, I believe, from this passage and many other passages throughout Scripture that God does indeed discipline his children. But how do we react to that? How should we react to that when we fall under God's discipline? I think David gives us an answer here in verse 15 throughout the rest of this psalm. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my inequity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good Accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So I believe here in verse 15 we see the proper response to God's discipline. David is placing his hope in the Lord. He's placing all of his trust in the Lord. He will wait for redemption. He's not trying to work his way back to the Lord. He's not running away in bitterness. He's waiting on salvation. In verse 18, we say that David confesses and repents. All of this is the proper response to God's discipline in our life. It should bring conviction. 
It should bring repentance, and it should ultimately bring growth. As he waits, he's crying out to the Lord. He knows that it's only the Lord who saves. So what can we take away from Psalm 38 this morning? We see from this passage again that God does discipline his children, that it's, that discipline is meant to bring us to repentance, that it's ultimately for our growth, it's for our good, and that it's a form of God's mercy. But a question I asked at the beginning uh, of this sermon this morning is how do you feel about that? Do you actually see it as a blessing in your life? Do you see it as a form of God's grace? Do you see it as a form of God's love? Because the truth is, when we are facing this in our own lives, it doesn't always feel like a blessing. Suffering is suffering. It's difficult. It's hard. It's costly. It's uncomfortable. And our natural bent is to avoid it at all costs. Yet Scripture tells us that it is a part of God's plan for His people. That means if you're a child of God, it's His plan for you. And if we really think about it, if we think about life apart from that discipline, that should be much more frightening. Because God's discipline in your life is a sign that He loves you. It's a sign that you're one of His. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. So many people in our culture today would say that anyone who causes pain and suffering or uncomfortableness in your life would not be loving you, but would be hating you, right? Anything that's not approval uh, would be seen as hate. Anything that's not affirmation would be seen as hate, no matter what the behavior is. But I do think we need to just kind of step back and think about that for a minute because you're being bombarded by this type of thinking day in and day out. That's what the culture is shoving down our throats. But if you're a parent in this room or you've been parented or you know parents, that should be everybody in here, can you truly love a child apart from discipline? Really, can you truly love a child apart from discipline? What if we only affirmed and praised, what if I only affirmed and praised all of my kids' behavior, no matter what it was? Because sometimes they act a little crazy and a little rebellious and a little selfish. They're sinners like their daddy. If we do that, How's life going to be for them? It's going to be pretty rough, and it's not going to be rough just for them. They're going to terrorize everybody around them their entire lives. They're going to grow up to be terrorists in one form or another. It's not going to work out well. Now, I know all of you also know parents who strive to make all situations work out for their kids, who want to make everything comfortable. And so what they do is they assert themselves in every single situation, everything that happens at school, everything that happens on every sports team, they don't want their child to face any adversity. They want them to be the teacher's uh, favorite student. 
They want everything to go well for them. And I know you teachers out there know exactly what I'm talking about. How's it going to go for that kid? What's going to happen when they get out into the big bad world and mama and daddy aren't there anymore? It's not good. That's when we have 40-year-olds living in basements and adult children who care more about video games and raising their kids and, and men who are really good at making babies and make baby after baby after baby but have absolutely nothing to do with them. So if you think that's the best way, come talk to me. We'll, we'll have a discussion about that. Come talk to some of these more uh, people who have raised kids. Come talk to these teachers in the room. It's not good. But what I want us to see this morning, the whole point of all of that, is that as we face the Lord's discipline in our lives, it's not about how we feel in the moment. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to feel good. My children feel much more loved by me, I'm sure, than, you know, when we're having fun. I'm buying them ice cream. We're hanging out, and everything's good. But, and, I, and I do wish it was that way all the time. But like I said, they're sinners like their daddy, and it can't be that way. Disciplining them is a sacrificial kind of love. It's a much deeper love. It's hard to do that, but it's necessary. It's kind of a much smaller and imperfect example of the way God loves us, except here's the big difference. God's love is perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. I make mistakes as a parent. I discipline out of frustration. I've disciplined out of anger. God never does that. If you had an abusive dad, that's not God. He never does that. His discipline is always out of perfect, deep, abiding love. And it's always with an eternal view. In modern culture, the problem is we often mistake kindness and agreeableness for love. And C.S. Lewis kind of addresses that in his book, The Problem of Pain. I just want to read to you what he said about that. He says, Love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. There is kindness in love, but love and kindness are not coterminous. And when kindness, in the sense given above, is separated from the other elements of love, it involves a certain fundamental indifference to its object, and even something like contempt of it. Kindness cons consents very readily to the removal of its object. We have all met people whose kindness to animals is constantly leading them to kill animals lest they should suffer. Kindness merely as such cares not whether the object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. It is for people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness on any terms. With the people we love, with our friends, with our spouses, our children, we are exacting and would rather see them suffer much than be happy in contemptible and estranging modes. So if God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. And it appears from all the records that though he has often rebuked us and condemned us, he has never re regarded us with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic sense. So I think the point of what C.S. Lewis is saying 
And the point I'm trying to get at is that God loves you more than simply to let you run wild. If you're his child, he, he loves you more than to let you run wild. He will constrain you one way or the other. He will stretch you. He will grow you. He will change you through the trials that you face or that you may be facing here this morning or that you will be facing in the future. We must always remember that he is in control of all things. He, that means he's even in control of our suffering. And that means he will see to it that you, you will persevere. I just want to finish this morning with Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 3 through 8, and we'll kind of wrap things up. It says this, beginning in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not, read, not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there in whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So this morning, as we think about that scripture, I want to urge you not to fear God's discipline, but fear much more being left without it. Fear being an illegitimate son. It's much more frightening to be left to your own way and to not be a son of God because in the end, if that's where you find yourself, you will face his unfiltered wrath and it won't be for your good. It'll be for your judgment. For those who have faced discipline, for those who are currently facing discipline in your lives, for those who will be facing it in the future, that's all believers. That's what Scripture tells us. Be comforted by the fact that you are a child of the living God, that He loves you, and that you will endure. Not because you're strong, not because you're earning it through your suffering, not because you're paying some penance, but because there was one who faced the Father's discipline who didn't deserve it. You see, we all deserve God's discipline. We deserve much worse. We deserve destruction. We've rebelled against God, but Jesus didn't. He lived a sinless life, yet he took the ultimate discipline on the cross for you and me. This is where we gain our confidence from. This is how we know we can endure because Christ has defeated sin. And that we will ultimately overcome sin in our lives. We'll ultimately overcome the suffering that comes along with it. And that one day we too will enter into eternal glory with him. A glory that's much greater than anything we can ever fathom. So as you go forward in this life, when you suffer when you face trials, 
when you find yourself under the Lord's discipline, know that God's ultimate design in all things is steadfast love. And that the design of our loving Father's discipline is for our good, it's for our holiness, it's for our ultimate peace, it's for our righteousness, and it's for our glorification with Him. Let's pray. Father, I just praise you that you are a God who does not leave us to our own ways, that you are a loving Father, that you love us enough to discipline us, to correct us, to grow us through that. Father, I praise you that you are willing to pour out the ultimate discipline on your perfect son. that he was able to pay for our sins once and for all, and that because of that, we can be reconciled to you, that we can know you for eternity, that we can be with you for eternity, and that it'll be glorious. Help us to live our lives in, in that eternal light. As we face difficulty in our lives, help us to, to seek you, to wait on you, to wait on your redemption, to wait... Uh, just on the change that you will bring in our lives. Help us to seek you in all things, even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't feel good. Help us to seek your face. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.